0: Andrew and Nabil work in the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, UK, where they work on microbes in food and the impact on human health. I work at Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and am an adjunct member at the University of Georgia in the US.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Micro bimp podcast. Andrew and I are your co-hosts today, and we're talking about Campylobacter. We're hoping we can discuss some of the specific issues for bioinformaticians to keep in mind when studying this organism. Our guest today is Dr. Ozan Gongadu. He leads the Foodborne Enteric Pathogen Group at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, where they studied the physiology and pathogenesis of Campylobacter and other related enteric microorganisms like Listeria and Vibrio. He has a background in microbiology and computer science. He completed his PhD at LSHTM in 2011, and he's worked in a number of different projects, continuing campy pathogenesis and some omics as well. And he started his position as in early 2019 as an assistant professor and group leader. So Ozen, firstly, we normally ask the question, who are you and what is a typical day for you?
2: Yeah, so thanks for having me on, the, on this podcast. so yeah so so my background is a microbiologist and computer scientist and I've been at the school at London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine actually for a long time since 2004. And I would say my first decade at the school was studying really the pathogen and physiology of Campylobacter, trying to understand the function of genes and their roles and often related to survival. And really, a lot of my research in the last sort of five years have moved from sort of laboratory work to more applied work uh, because it's a really important aspect of Campylobacter research. And shifting more towards next generation sequencing, whether that's whole genome sequence transcriptomics or uh, metagenomics microbiome work. So a typical day these days involves doing, trying to find a little time to do some research. And and that is often bioinformatics research. I have very little time, unfortunately, to go back in the lab. And currently I have three PhD students and one postdoc, and they are doing all of the the laboratory work in terms of pathogenesis and physiology. And uh, yeah, uh, the typical, the typical cycle of academia of trying to win, trying to get some funding to continue this research.
3: So can you tell me about Campy, right? Because it's not a pathogen that is on the tip of your tongue. If a common person thinks about foodborne pathogens, you know, you think chicken, salmonella, that kind of thing. So where does Campy fit into that?
2: In the early 2000s, when I started, when I spoke to people about Campylobacter, that I'm working on Campylobacter, most people hadn't heard of it. And, you know, especially when you compare it to something like salmonella that a lot of people were aware of. And I think there's a few reasons for this. The disease, Campylobacter is typically self-limiting. So most people would contract it within two weeks, you may get diarrhea, you may get you know various symptoms related to diarrhea and, and gastroenteritis, but it would pretty much clear and pass out the system. The problem that we have is that there's a, first of all, there's a distinction between what we see in high resource countries and what we see in low resource, low middle income countries, low resource countries. So in high resource countries, it's typically acute bloody diarrhea, and it's more associated with an economic in, the economic implications of the disease. So a lot of people take time off work. And for example, in 2019, it was estimated that it cost the UK government one billion alone that year from people contracting Campylobacter. However, elderly people, immunocompromised you know, people, they can get uh, they can die from it. And, and one of the issues is that most people don't go to report the, the infection. So whereas we, we see cases in the UK of like 50,000, 60,000, 70,000 a year, it's generally believed that it's actually 10 times more than this. So it's sort of up to like half a million or more.
3: So what are the main routes of transmission then?
2: So the main routes of transmission pretty much in the developing, in the high resource countries, it's from contaminated poultry, contaminated avians from food. However, just to, just to go back on, the, the disease profile in low-resource countries is very different. It's watery diarrhoea, and a lot of children die from, from contracting Campylobacter and just simply a case of lack of fluids. Probably due to pre-exposure and the, the regularity of exposure, In low-resource countries, a lot of the time, it's much more environmental. It's much more from things like just water contamination. People don't get acute diarrhea. They would get what's acute bloody diarrhea. They would get more of a a watery diarrhea. And so the disease profiles, if you like, from high-income countries and low-income countries are different. And the sources of where you actually contract the infection are varied. I would say in the last five years, the UK government has definitely made a big push to educate people to be much more aware of what Campylobacter is. So definitely speaking to people, you you get an impression that they are much more aware of this. And the classic example they gave is, there was a government campaign to say, don't wash your chicken, don't wash your poultry when you get it out, when you take it out of the bag. And most people actually were a bit confused by that because naturally one would think you'd wash it to make it clean. The problem is, is that on the surface of the actual avian, the poultry, Campylobacter resides heavily in numbers. And so there was a risk of it splashing around, you know, to utensils, to surrounding vegetables or tables, equipment and things like that. And so you actually were increasing the risk of Campylobacter passing, getting to to humans. And so the advice was take it out of the bag and directly put this in the oven and cook the thing properly. And that does go a, a long way to actually minimizing the contraction of Campylobacter infection. So yeah, I would say definitely more people are aware of Campylobacter these days.
1: I mean, how often would you expect to see Campy on a store-bought chicken?
2: The problem we have, okay, a little bit is, why is Campylobacter present in chickens in such high numbers? So it can actually be found up to 10 to the nine CFU. That's a hell of a lot of, you know, bacteria colonies within chickens. And it doesn't necessarily cause avians and chicken harm. This is the this is a bit of a conundrum. So there is a discussion point about whether is Campylobacter a commensal? You know, is it actually there, happily residing? There has been some research in the last five years that have shown, depending on the strain of Campylobacter, the ge, you know the genomics of the Campylobacter, what genes are, are present in the genome, the type of chicken and the environmental conditions, it you know, Campylobacter within chickens may actually cause a similar disease or a disease profile within chickens. And so there's a discussion point as to whether it's classified as as a commensal, but the reality is it's there in high numbers.
3: So is there any difference between like organic chicken or free-range chicken or just, you know, barn hens, that kind of thing?
2: So that's a good question. The short answer is very difficult to answer that in a yes or no uh, response. What I would say is that some of the research that's, that actually we've been doing in the last five years have shown that actually if you m- manipulate the environmental parameters if you manipulate for example stocking density which is the amount of chickens in a in a space you do change you do have a knock on effect on the chicken gut microbiome in terms of micro- microbial population structure and potentially also impact the levels of Campylobacter within the chickens it's it's very difficult to, to definitively say You know you need to do this or you need to do that i mean in terms of in terms of poultry welfare and things like that it's it's obviously very important to have you know low stocking density and and all of these welfare issues come into play and obviously that has downstream effects on campylobacter within the actual avians
3: so my understanding of the way chickens are reared for eating broiler chickens they get an empty like a chicken i don't know what you call it a barn and okay. then they shove in some new, you know, baby chicks, they grow them up, and then a few weeks later, they kill cool them all, and then it's empty again. So how does Campy persist? You know, how does it get in there and spread, and then keep yes. spreading all the time? It,
2: it's it's the uh, sort of $64,000 question. So we've done some research where we've looked, and, and many other groups, when do you see Campy appearing in the chicken gut microbiome? Why do you see it? You know, why is it coming in there? There is some some anecdotal information that says typically it appears within the two weeks of the chicken life cycle. And you're right, typically these chickens would be, for example, killed at day 35 for for meat production. Now, a lot of the time, what, what definitely has happened is, you know, in terms of controlling campylobacter infections, yes, we need to study it within the laboratory in terms of pathogenesis and physiology, and then link that information to more applied research because what's happening in the laboratory isn't always what's happening in the farm yes government policy needs to come into place to try to minimize campylobacter coming into these farms and i can definitely say from visiting some of the uk's uh, leading poultry suppliers i mean just to get into these uh, facilities it was like going through you know a nasa you know uh, system of security it was incredible and so then uh, you you start to question where is the campylobacter coming from now campylobacter one of its most interesting attributes is it's it is omnipresent it is present throughout the environment you can find it everywhere and so this is a problem because even though it's got a relatively small genome i think roughly 1.64 megabases in size it's incredibly compact there's very free space of you know it's all open reading frames throughout the genome and it has, it must have good genetic regulatory mechanisms to survive in non-ideal conditions. It's classified as microaerophilic, which means ideally it likes five to ten percent oxygen. And we have in the environment approximately 19.2 percent oxygen. How is it able to survive in these in these conditions? This is the great Campylobacter conundrum. I would also touch on a little bit on Campylobacter in terms of why we've had difficulties studying it over the years. Why is it, you know, when you, th- a lot of scientists, when they think of Campylobacter, it's a really fussy, pedantic bacteria. And, and some of the reasons for this is because when you compare it to other bacteria like Bacillus or E. coli, it's not classified as a uh, model organism. It hasn't had a very good, convenient animal model over the years. And it's very difficult to grow. It can be quite fussy. And these attributes actually led us, it was one of the first bacteria to have its whole uh, genome sequence. This was 1999-2000 at the Sanger Institute. And it was really interesting because it, again, we found a compact genome. It, it did not have classic secretion systems like type 3 secretion system, which was missing. More recently, our group has started studying. We found strains that have the type 6 secretion system. So we've mm-hmm. looked into that. And it has... You know, I'll give you one story, one, one you know anecdote. A lot of people pre-2000 did not believe Campylobacter had a capsule. They were really adamant that it did not have a capsule around the actual bacteria. And so scientists at the NSHTM actually showed that it does have a capsule. And I remember people apparently were speaking in a conference and, and the audience members were, sh- were shouting and saying, I've worked on Campylobacter for 30 years and I've never seen a capsule. This is horrific, I'm leaving this presentation. Lo and behold, the genome sequence came out. There's your 25, 30 gene loci encoding for the capsule. Nobody said anything after that. It's clear, it's definitive. And, and some other key attributes that, come, that, that came out from that genome sequence was things like lipo-oligosaccharide on the outer surface, You know things like O-link glycosylation, addition of sugars on the flagella to help the evasion of the immune system, and N, really interestingly, N-link glycosylation, periplasmic proteins, outer surface protein, which sugars being added to help functionality, traditionally only found in eukaryotes. So this was something quite novel to Campylobacter. So really that genome sequencing did spawn a new era, I would say, of pathogenesis physiology re- research from 2000 onwards.
3: So when you're talking about Campy, do you mean the entire genus, or are you talking more about gigi universe? That's or a good point.
2: Yeah. So typically we're referring to Campylobacter jejuni. And the reason for that is that's the species that causes about 80%, 85% of of infections within humans. There are some really other important species like Campylobacter coli, Campylobacter fetus, and and various other ones. But yeah, so typically we're talking about jejuni.
3: Is there any vaccines or anything or treatments for it that you can give to chickens to stop it in its tracks before it gets to humans? That's a really
2: good question and the vaccine discussion point is really interesting. I think there are some vaccines out there at early phase. I know that there's some research going on at NSHTM for example that look at animal zoonosis type, uh, zoonotic type vaccines. I think a lot of the time it comes down it's it's two, two issues. First of all it comes down to cost. You really need to justify giving a vaccine to for example putting it in the chicken feed or the poultry feed to an animal that you're going to sacrifice or kill in 35 days, so there has to be a real cost. You know, a lot of these things come down to cost. But the other side is what I mentioned earlier. This is a, the interesting point. You only need 100 to 500 colonies to come into contact with a human, and that human will contract an infection. What do you do? How does a vaccine? Can a vaccine work efficiently? Bring when there is 10 to the 9 colonies within a chicken. So even if you did bring that, even if the vaccine was efficient and you did bring that number down to like 10 to the five or 10 to the four, it's still, it's still there and it's still potentially giving issues to humans. And so when we look at really dealing with Campylobacter, I I think maybe like almost a, a one health approach is needed, you know, so you need that laboratory pathogenesis physiology, you need the vaccine potentially, you need government policy and you need Um, education to to customers and consumers to cook the chicken properly.
3: So is uh, Campy present in like wild birds and things like that? So, you know, if you vaccinated all the chickens, would you still have major problems then with, you know, just wild birds flying around causing issues?
2: Exactly. That's that is the case. Campylobacter is, is omnipresent within the environment and you know it it is present in wild birds as well and there's been a number of studies on this and this links to what happens in low resource countries because in low resource countries you don't always get that uh, state-of-the-art high throughput manufacturing process for chicken avian poultry production you do backyard markets you do get peri-urban type markets and these all have a role in in the zoonosis process
1: yeah, I'm curious, following on from that, is there evidence of carriage in water for, for Campy?
2: Yes, big time. So here's another anecdotal story. In high-income, high-resource countries, we do see a peak in the summer of Campylobacter. Now, there's a few hypotheses going around for this. One, that you know it could be due to lifestyle. So, for example, people do more barbecues. They may not be cooking their chicken properly there may be some contamination at that point but you also see in terms of you know humidity water droplets swimming pools this kind of thing puddles even having campylobacter so in the us there was an outbreak of campylobacter infections of people doing a i'm not sure what the exact name is it wasn't a triathlon but it was something like tough mother or something like that it was, Hi, it man. was
1: no, yes. tough mother's the thing. Yeah, yeah. Tough
2: mother. Oh, I, <laughs> yeah. I can't. I can't remember the exact name. And 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 there was an outbreak. Or oh, you know, a number of people contracted Campylobacter. That was believed to be because there were a number of puddles around this, you know, this course or whatever it was that had Campylobacter within the water. And so this is the kind of thing that can happen, and it's it's quite interesting because that's definitely linked more to sort of a, a lifestyle type aspect. I don't think we have a clear, definitive answer as to why the numbers are increasing in the summer, in in high resource countries at least. But I know uh, a lot of people are looking into that kind of research.
1: Yeah, I'll just clarify with the tough mother thing. That's quite that makes sense because the tough mother thing, I think, is it's sort of that boot camp obstacle course where you're climbing over stuff or you jumping over things with ropes and the water pits behind it for you to fall into so yeah there would be very muddy and very wet and people would be jumping in and out of water
3: exactly what about vaccinating humans you know if we can't do the chickens to humans is there any vaccine candidates out there uh, particularly for low-resource countries
2: I'm not sure how
3: close we are to that, if I'm honest with you.
2: I know people are working on this, but again, it comes down to cost. It, I'm not, it's not an area that I have expertise. Uh,
3: okay, maybe I'll tell you the answer, right? <laughs> I think the vaccine candidates they've had so far cause Guillain-Barre's disease. Yeah.
2: Apart from gastroenteritis, one of the issues that can happen if you contract Campylobacter is there is approximately, a, I think the numbers are like one in a thousand, Chance that you could get post-infectious neuropathy. So those are where the bacteria outer surface mimics the human gangliosides within the within the human, and so you actually get an autoimmune illness. So your body attacks yourself, and you can get paralysis. And and there's a variant of this Miller Fisher syndrome, which is paralysis of the eyes. One in a thousand doesn't sound a lot, but when you see the numbers globally of how many people contract this, this is this is an issue. And there were famous stories about famous footballers that were contracting it. I think uh, the one I remember is Marcus Babel was a famous German international playing for Liverpool that contracted it and he was paralyzed for nine months. And so if the vaccine is causing potential risk of GBS, Guillain-Barre syndrome, then that's that's definitely a a, a problem and a no-go area. And I think that's, from my understanding, that's one of the reasons that the strategy up to now and the cheapest strategy was potentially to Give this to the poultry in terms of potentially lowering the numbers within the chickens. There is an interesting discussion point there, actually, about the poultry, in that some researchers have actually said that maybe the presence of Campylobacter does actually lead to a, I wouldn't say necessarily healthier, but metrics of the chicken look better when Campylobacter is present. There's been some conflicting reports about that. But some people with a huge N, a huge sample size, huge N, have actually observed this. So it comes back to the point of, is Campylobacter a commensal? And that is, that is a question that at the moment is, is not answered, is unanswered.
1: Okay, so that's all the time we have for today. We've been talking about Campylobacter and uh, just giving a brief overview of this organism and we'll be discussing specifics that bioinformaticians need to keep in mind when studying this organism. Our guest today was Dr. Ozangongadu. He leads the Food Enteric Pathogen Group at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And we're really happy to have him on the show and we'll see you next time.
0: Thank you so much for listening to us at home. If you like this podcast, Please subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or the platform of your choice. Follow us on Twitter at Microbinfi. And if you don't like this podcast, please don't do anything. This podcast was recorded by the Microbial Bioinformatics Group. The opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadrum Institute.